I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. That's wit.fm. Cryptography is fundamental to providing privacy and security over the internet. Tal Ravine, head of research of the Algorand Foundation, explained what cryptography is and the main ideas behind it. We talked about the building blocks of cryptography and how these can be used to build protocols and systems that provide privacy and security. Tal Ravin is a researcher whose general area focuses on cryptography and, more specifically, on secure multi-party computation, threshold cryptography, and proactive security. She obtained a PhD in computer science from the Hebrew University in Israel in 1994. Tal worked at IBM Research in the cryptography group and managed it from 1997 to 2019. Because of her work in cryptography and innovation, in 2014, Tal was the recipient of the Abbey Award for Innovation. Abbey Awards are presented by AnitaB.org, a global nonprofit organization with a mission to help women in tech succeed. Abbey Awards honor and celebrate women who have led technical innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This series highlights their work. For more information about the Abbey Awards, go to anitab.org. Before we get on with the interview, I wanted to tell you about our new podcast called 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, entrepreneurs, artists, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching 5-Minute Mentor. Thank you. Tal Ravine, head of research at the Algorand Foundation, is joining us today. Tal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to talk a lot about cryptography, some of the ideas behind it. But first I want to talk briefly about your time growing up. I saw that, you know, as a child you enjoyed solving riddles and playing strategic games. Can you talk about the kind of games and riddles this were, sort of some context around that? So games, I liked um, mostly box games. It wasn't there. Now there's this whole plethora of really exciting and interesting games. But then we had the basic things, but I loved Stratego. I liked Risk. Uh, games that there was also Othello. Games that there was a strategy in thinking of what to do. I uh, knew how to play chess, but I never got into it or liked it very much. But on top of that, I also played a lot of other games that I enjoyed. Um, the riddles were mostly things my father would ask me. I can't even remember now exactly what they were. But all kinds of questions. Uh, these questions about we're on an island and people either lie or tell the truth. And then you ask a question. You want to determine who are the liars and who are the truth tellers. And you go through some sequence of questions. Things like that, things that he would ask me. I want to talk now about your work and your background. You've been in the tech industry for, for several decades. You studied computer science in the 80s. Then you did a PhD also in computer science. Can you give a quick overview of, of your trajectory? 
in this field? So I grew up in Israel and I studied in Israel. And Israel is a country where you have to choose your area of studies. You don't go to a liberal arts education like here in the U.S. So you really have to decide beforehand. So I applied both to computer science and to law school. Just to make it clear, my mother is a lawyer. So I sort of was going both ways. And I don't know at the end how I really made the decision to go into computer science. I guess that I did love math the most of all things I did, and that sort of really made the last push in determining between those two options. And then I started computer science in Jerusalem, and I graduated in 1986, and I think that was the only year in the history of Israel's high tech that there was a slump in the job market. And it was clear that I wouldn't be able to get a great job like the one that I wanted. So I decided that I would continue to do a master's. That was sort of the pushing force towards that. And the masters in Israel are also not like in the US. It's a master's that you have to do an original thesis. So in that work, once that was solved and the whole process and the thinking and the trying to solve things, I really fell in love with it. And that was clear at that point that I was going to continue on to a PhD, something that I wasn't 100% sure of before. But then I knew this is my path and my way. After my PhD, I went and I did a postdoc at MIT for two years. And then I applied for my uh, job at IBM Research. This was, in fact, the only job I applied to. I don't know what I was thinking. Of course, that's not a wise thing to do. You should always spread your search wider. But I did get that job. And I was there, in fact, for almost 23 years. It was my first job and only job until April of this year when I left. I had decided that I'm at an age that if I stay a while longer, it will be my only job. I mean, I'll finish work my career there and I decided that I did want to do one more thing something else and I had applied for other jobs this time I applied to more than one place learning from my previous mistakes or not mistakes and uh, then I moved to this new thing this Algorand Foundation which is somewhat of uh, an adventure my group and I we have a, a WhatsApp group and it's called the adventure. And so far, it's been proving to be wonderful, though not without challenges. But I have my team with me. It's the same team that I worked with at IBM. And when you love your work environment and the people that you work with, then everything is great, even if things are, there are obstacles along the way. Yeah. When I was researching for this, I saw cryptography comes from ancient Greek words. One of them is cryptos, which means hidden secret. And the other one, graphene, which means to write. So we have write hidden secret. Can you explain the idea behind cryptography? Cryptography is a wide range of things, but definitely the most known element of cryptography is encryption, which is sort of why what this um, definition that you gave is writing of hidden secrets. So I'll talk about encryption, and we can talk about other um, cryptographic functionalities um, after that. What is the idea for encryption? And encryption, in fact, has existed for the, since the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Romans. The idea is that people want to communicate privately. 
I want to send you a message over some channel, and I don't want other people to be able to hear it, to understand what I'm saying. In the past, it was mostly used, I'm assuming, I don't know, for um, coordinations between generals who want to attack in wartime and things like that. Military secrets probably were the dominant force for this, though people have secrets not only related to war and military things. So the idea is that you take a message, the message is, um, let's make it not about war. You want to tell me that you went on a great date with someone and you don't want everybody to hear. So you send me a message and you want to garble it first so that when somebody listening to our communication channel just see garbled information. Then when it comes to me, I will be able through some process to see the real message. So the initial part, when you garble it, it's called encryption. And when I receive the original message, it's called decryption. And how do we do it? I mean, why can't the person listening understand? It Because you and I share some key, some secret key. There are all kinds of variations of how to do encryption. There's public and private key encryption, but not important. Just the essence is we share a key. You use that key to garble. I use this key to ungarble. And that's how we communicate privately. And that's how we write hidden secrets. Mm -hmm. So you just described encryption, which is one of the main characteristics of cryptography. I saw that, that at a high level, cryptography is in charge of providing this privacy and security. And I'm guessing encryption is for the privacy component. Can you talk about the security piece? So as I said... Why do we want the encryption so people don't hear what we're saying? But of course, that's not sufficient, right? When I get your message telling me about the date, I want to be sure that it really came from you and um, that nobody has altered it and so on. So these are additional features, exactly as you said, not just privacy, but authentication, non-malleability, that things are not being modified, the passwords that we use. In fact, you want to send a password, you want it to be encrypted for privacy, but there's much more that goes beyond to verify that the password is correct. So these things are the additional functionalities of crypto. This is at the basic functionalities, the things that are used heavily in the internet which enables you to do these private computations, not just private holding the privacy of the data by encryption, but to go a step above and mm -hmm. to also do computations that preserve the privacies of the input. Mm -hmm. And I said um, an election, that's one, voting is one example, but there are much more complex examples. I can give you one if you're interested. So here's another example. A doctor has a patient for whom they've matched the genome of the patient. The patient is ill. And the hospital has had many patients in the past and has mapped those genomes, knows what diseases these people have and how they were treated and how effective the treatment was. Due to privacy laws like HIPAA, the doctor cannot share the genome of the patient with the hospital and the hospital cannot share its database with the doctor. So it looks like we're stuck, that we won't be able to gain advantage from this knowledge that's been acquired by the hospital and is really important maybe to save the life of the patient. So they can engage in such a multi-party computation. We have, in fact, designed such a protocol that they will both enter their inputs, but the inputs will remain private, but the doctor will get his output. The doctor will learn a very limited amount of information. He will learn that people whose genome was close to his patient's genome had disease A, 
was, were treated with treatment B and the effectiveness of the treatment. But he learned this only about maybe two, three patients instead of learning the full database of the hospital. He will not know their name or anything. He'll just know that the genome is close. This was the disease, the treatment, and effectiveness. So you can see that these multi-party computations bring great value in settings when we need to preserve privacy. We talked about encryption and some components in security. And one of the things that I also noticed when I was researching for this is this so-called cryptographic primitives. One of these concepts, I think, is the one called one-way function. Is that correct? Okay. So first of all, primitives. Primitives is just the distinction between things that we consider more elementary, like encryption, um, one-way functions, um, hash functions, and so on. Those we call the primitives. And then above that, we build a whole class of things which we still consider to, as cryptography, such as multi-party computation. So that's the thing. So what is a one-way function? The idea with a one-way function is that it's something that is easy to compute but hard to undo. People love giving the following example, which I thoroughly hate, but I will give it. It's like meat. You chop the meat, you can make it uh, chopped meat, but then you can't put the piece back together. I don't like this analogy because also you don't have a way to go back at all from the chopped meat. But... It somehow gives the sense of something that's easy to do and something that's hard to undo. So this is what one-way functions are. That is the essence of one-way functions. Now I want to correlate it to something that I had mentioned before. I told you that there are two types of encryptions. One is um, private key encryption and one is public key encryption. Or the private one is also so-called symmetric we had talked that the Greeks, the, the Romans, the Egyptians might have also already had encryption schemes. And in fact, we even know that there was a Caesar cipher. These ciphers are what's called symmetric or private. And they required that you and I meet in advance to share the key. The key that I mentioned before, we had to meet. We had to physically meet and exchange the key. And this is the way that things were done, even through World War II. Uh, the Enigma was a machine that encrypted, but people agreed beforehand by meeting on the settings of the machine. But this was done through interaction that happened in person, where we knew that the things were secure. And it would seem that doing something without meeting and agreeing on some secret, we couldn't do anything. How... how if I can listen to you on an open channel, so can the person who wants to eavesdrop on our communications. What can we do? How do we bootstrap this system? And this is what happened in 1976 with the introduction of what we call modern-day cryptography. And this was the idea that we would be able to communicate and send encrypted messages without us meeting beforehand at all. And that's a little weird. But now, think about our one-way functions. What do I do? You set up some one-way function. Okay, now there is a specific type of a one-way function, which is easy to compute but hard to invert for most people. And then there could be somebody who prepared the one-way function, and they kept something that is called a trapdoor. And if they have the trapdoor, they could also easily convert the function. Okay? okay, so what do you do? You set up a, a one-way function of some sort. You keep a trapdoor. 
Now, I send you my message under this one-way function. Nobody listening can understand what it is or inverted because we said it's difficult. That's the property and the one-way function. But you have the trapdoor. So you use the trapdoor, and because of that, you can decrypt my message. So this is how one-way functions, but special ones with trapdoors, enabled this modern-day cryptography. And this was a huge change that we do not need to meet in order to commute privately. I mean, think of the internet, right? You're talking to people you've never met ever before. Yeah. How would you meet them in advance? Amazon. Where would you go to meet Amazon <laughs> to fix a key with them so that you can buy things on the Amazon, yeah. right? Yeah. So this is really what enables us to really have a truly digital society, which did not exist before, because we, of course, want privacy, security, and so on. And all these things are based on that, on those ideas. So without these things, we would be nowhere with our digital yeah. society. It would be chaos, right? Because credit cards could get stolen and that kind of information, right? Of course, of course. Without privacy and authentication and so on, of course, your bank account could be cleared from all its money. Yeah. Not a positive thought. So, yeah. <laughs> so two characteristics that you mentioned of one-way functions, they're easy to compute, but they're hard to revert. Hard, but not impossible, right? So this is a very interesting point about security in the internet. People think that things are secure. So first of all, they're not secure because implementation is not secure. But more than that, cryptography, except for something that's called a one-time pad for which we need to meet, no cryptography is 100% secure. When I say that no one can invert it, that's incorrect. Okay, I'm just saying it because we say it in this way colloquially, but the truth is that there is a chance that somebody could invert this thing. Everything in cryptography is based on something called a computational assumption. And if the computational assumption is broken, the crypto system, which is built on top of this computational assumption, is broken. Let me give a concrete example. RSA, which is one of the most um, uh, used encryption and signature schemes is based on an assumption that it is hard to factor numbers. Okay. What does that mean? If I give you the number 15, you say to me, what's so hard? It's prime factors are three and five. We all learned in school how to factor numbers, right? We check every number until the square root of the number and we get all the factors. So what is the assumption? The assumption is that the only way you can compute the factorization is the way that I just said, that you check every number until the square root and see if it divides the number. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? How do we create a crypto system out of it? We take a really, 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 really big number that to do this process that I said is simply too time consuming. It's not that it cannot be done, but it's time consuming. However, I said it's an assumption. What's the assumption? The assumption is that the only way to factor is to do that algorithm that I mentioned. But maybe somebody smart comes along and finds a way to factor faster, that they get the number and within a few seconds they can factor, that they, even on a small computer they can do it efficiently. So if this assumption is broken and somebody comes up with an algorithm to factor quickly, for example, 
We know how to factor quickly on a quantum computer. So once quantum computers are readily available, we will, in fact, RSA will no longer be secure. So this is definitely um, uh, something that is not absolute ever. No crypto system that we know, except for the one-time pad that I mentioned, is secure unconditional. It can be broken. It's just a question of how long the computing time takes. And we make an assumption that the computing time is long. But who knows? As I said, for example, factoring on a quantum computer, we know is easy. Yeah. Can you give some context uh, into how long means, like magnitudes of time, like just some idea so people understand? So the issue is, it's all a question of how long do we make the key, okay? We discussed keys. I had said to you, we have a key. So if we're discussing the RSA um, uh, system, there is a key of a certain length, and depending on the length of the key is the time that you can break it. Currently, I think I'm saying the right number, but I'm not 100% sure. I think that currently people are using 1,024-bit keys. But people are definitely talking about going up to 2,048-bit keys. We don't know, for example, whether the NSA has uh, specially dedicated machines that they can factor faster. We don't know. At this time, we think that 1,024 is definitely secure for the near future. But of course, if you want things to last for 50 years, that the privacy will be preserved for 50 years, Mm -hmm. then you would need to go to something like a 2048-bit key. So it gives you some rough idea of where we stand with respect to the length of the keys. And of course, I'm saying 2048, but assume that in these 50 years, a quantum computer does become available, then that 2048 is not relevant either. And that's why people are looking into what's called post-quantum crypto, which is um, crypto that's going to remain secure under a different assumption, even after quantum computers exist. Crypto now has branched and become something much bigger than that. And there are much more things in the area that provide additional, very, very interesting functionalities. So we had spoken about encrypting a message, but maybe we want to do more than a message. Maybe we are 10 people and we want to vote for a leader, let's say. We want, and we want the vote to be private. It's not sufficient to encrypt the message, though it keeps the content of the vote private. We need to somehow tally the votes. So it's not just enough. Encryption's not enough. We also want a mechanism to count these votes in a private preserving way that we will not learn the vote of each person in the room. And in fact, there's a whole sub-area of cryptography, which is called multi-party computations, We've been talking a lot about, you know, the basic building blocks of cryptography. So these are what they're called primitives. And then based on that, we can build algorithms and systems like the multi-party computation and along with other functions. The foundation of cryptography is in mathematics. And I've seen you talk about this, how it's very elegant and it's great that this is the foundation of it. Can you talk about this, the role of math in cryptography? So as I had just given an example about the RSA encryption and signature scheme, this is based on mathematics, because what is the question? The question is, first of all, how do you encrypt? So it's some mathematical operation, which is exponentiation. And how do you decrypt? That's another operation. And then there are a lot of things that come into it, which how do you design the encryption key and the decryption key? And they are some 
two elements in some specific field. So it really is all based in mathematics. The assumptions are, however, an idea that comes from computer science. This is not something, if you would tell a mathematician that there is an assumption about factoring, they would sort of laugh because they'd say, what do you mean? Of course we know how to factor. But this issue of computation, of complexity of computation, is a new thing that arose with the advancement of computing and computing power. And it has a mathematical flavor to it, but it's not 100% math. But a lot of these designs that we have are math-based, uh, discrete log-based and so on, um, computing in um, finite fields, and many, many more things that really are just mathematical in essence. Let's talk now about your time at IBM, and you joined in the mid-90s in the IBM research group. But prior to that, like you mentioned, you were doing a PhD and you were in academia. Can you talk in general your experience of doing research in the academia versus in the industry? I did a research in academia only as a student and then a postdoc, which is not exactly being a faculty because it lacks the aspect that you have students, that you're mentoring, and so on. I was part of IBM Research, which really is a very good research environment. You do get to do research almost like you're in a university. Of course, you have to contribute to the institution in which you sit. That's also true of a university. You have to sit on committees and so on. But IBM was really a very welcoming and understood the value of research, of doing pure research. And my team, uh, most of our collaborators were in universities, and we did work that was similar to their work. I mean, we even have co-authored papers and so on. So IBM was a very nice environment at the years that I was there to do the work that we wanted to do, and it was appreciated by the company, which is, you need that in order to continue doing the work. What was the team that you were a part of at IBM Research? I was um, the manager of the group that was called Cryptographic Research. And uh, we basically all did the same type of work uh, with some variation. Some people worked on key exchange and fully homomorphic encryption and all kinds of things, various obfuscation, hash functions. We did everything. Not everybody did everything. The group did a lot of things, but every person had their somewhat specialty. And at the beginning, you highlighted the importance of a good working environment. What are some of the characteristics, in your opinion, of a good working environment? I think that this is very crucial. Unfortunately, it seems that many people find themselves in a situation where they don't like their peers, they don't like their boss, and it really makes life miserable. And if you wake up in the morning and you don't want to go to work, that's not a good setting. That is not something that you should stay in. What do I consider to be a good setting? I love the people I worked with. We enjoyed being together with some of the people there. I've been together with one. I came in 96, one came in 97, and we've been together all this time. Another one came at the beginning of 2000. So really, we've been a group that has been together for a long time. We collaborated. We respected each other. We listened to each other. It was just, and beyond that, we also became friends. This is not very common in the U.S. workforce, but we are friends. We celebrate holidays together. We go out together. I mean, this was 
we raised our kids together. We have kids the same age. So this was um, part of the life. And for me personally, I don't know if you need to have all these things, including the friendship and so on, but the respect, the working together, the appreciation of each other's talents, I think that's very crucial. And just having nice people. And the group was from all over the world, right? Your colleagues? Yes. Before we left IBM, it was me and another Israeli and another half Israeli, somebody who came from Argentina and moved to Israel, an American. We had one American, a French guy and an Indian guy. So really very diverse. But this is quite representative of research. People in research are from all over. Yeah. And the other thing that I've seen you mention is that at some point you're realizing there are not a lot of women. And I don't know, you sort of became more aware of this. Can you talk about some of the you know, initiatives that you're looking into? Saying that I became more aware is somewhat true. I think maybe I just realized the importance of this thing. It's not that I was unaware before that there were no women. I always knew that I was the only woman, okay. but... <laughs> well, it was more of a realization, like, this just decades pass and it's the same, or I don't know. Yeah, it was a realization that I need to do something. Yeah. That things need to change, and... It's not that I have a silver bullet that I know what's going to change, but I decided that I would make my effort and try to move things. And hopefully it will improve, I don't know for how many women, but maybe for some women it'll make a change. And because of that, in 2008, I created a workshop called Women in Theory. And it's run every two years. I have two co-organizers, uh, Lisa and Shubangi. And the first, I think, year that I have it, maybe the second time also, it was around 40, 50 women. This past time when we did it in 2018, we already had 130 applicants. And we don't do a lot of um, PR or spreading the word. It's the women going back to their institutions and telling the next generation of women, when this comes up in two years, you have to go. This is amazing. And the responses that we're getting from women, not from everyone, of course, but definitely you get the responses of this is a, a, was a life-changing event. In fact, I was in a, some workshop in uh, Tel Aviv two weeks ago, blockchain. A woman comes up to me and says to me, I was in uh, Women in Theory 2018, And I, my whole current career is due to you guys. This brought me into this thing, got me into it more. I think I got this job because of it. And just thank you, thank you. So you hear that, it really, you feel you've done something. I don't know that every woman is impacted at that level, but even if there are a few that are at that level and a few at a lower level. So this is something that I believe in dearly and try to pursue. And what does the workshop consist of, just to get an idea, the activities? The workshop is intended for women who are graduate students. Those are the participants, and the speakers are women who are researchers. In the first two times, I only brought senior women, only the women who've already made it and so on. But then we realized that maybe we should have more of a mix, even of the speakers. So now we have a woman who's uh, maybe a postdoc at the beginning years of her academic career and so on, and also in industry, not just in academia, but also in industrial research and so on, all the way to the senior women. And the women give technical talks. The workshop is almost 100% technical. We also have one speaker that talks about things. We've had a speaker come and talk about why women don't ask about 
raises, about getting um, uh, promotions and so on, and the fact that we should be doing it, and sort of giving these women maybe tools and understanding. And then there's also a panel, which the women love, that all the speakers sit on the stage and the students can ask questions. That always goes long over time. I always have to cut it at the end. But uh, the student, because you see, they see, And even I see, I mean, even I enjoy hearing my um, peers' answers that everybody is struggling in the same way. It's not unique to you. This is something that, first of all, maybe also men struggle with some of these things, but also maybe if it's only women's issue, for example, being pregnant during a PhD, a man does not think about it twice. But you see that women who've made it have also battled these issues and considered what to do and found solutions. Maybe it's not the solution that's right for you, Mm -hmm. but you see that it can be done. It gives you optimism that you can succeed as well. That's great. Before we finish, I want to ask you about the Abbey Award of Innovation that you received since we're here at Grace Hopper. You received this award in 2014. What did getting this award mean to you? The truth is that I think that it was a lot. And it's, I sort of, first of all, the honor was huge. And I felt for the committee who selected me, but also for the people who nominated me and believed in me, which, by the way, was somebody from my group. And then there was the movie that the guys in my group spoke. And it really, it's not that I don't know it on a day-to-day, but sometimes when people say it out loud, it, it just gives you a feeling all over your body that it f- makes you feel great. So in that respect, it was a lot. But then I think it also, I believe in this reactive thing that happens. I think that because of that, uh, then some other people recognized me for something and so on. I think it does create sort of a chain of recognition. But the truth is that these recognitions, though nice, the best thing is really the work that leads to them. Exactly. And the people who believe in you when they give it to you. Yeah. And I did see that video from your colleagues and it really highlighted what you talk about building a good working environment. Some people in the video said I came to work here because of her and, you know, love working on these problems and with these people. So that was great. I was moved almost to tears when I saw that movie and I then I had to give my speech. It was a little hard. I'd never seen it before. And... Yeah, me too. And it's not even about me, but I could, <laughs> I could feel Well, Tal, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real treat talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope you don't cut what I'm going to say now, but you're truly amazing. I mean, I've never been interviewed by somebody who really studied the material and had such a profound understanding in order to ask important questions. So thank you. Thank you.